Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in this, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jane. Will you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, you've given us your word, a light to shine upon our path. Help us to meditate on your word, to taste it and to follow its teachings so that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day that you have promised. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. As Doran mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to spend four weeks looking at three stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Three stories that Jesus tells. They're commonly called parables. And Jesus tells these parables to help us understand God's heart. What is God's heart? So these are going to be uh, less practical. Those of you who want, like, give me something to do, Pastor Chris. Uh, you're, I'm not. <laughs> not for the next four weeks, at least. These are all about helping us to know God. But here's what we find, and we're going to look more at this uh, phenomenon next week. The more we know God's heart, the more it changes our heart. And the more God changes our heart, the more our actions will inevitably change. So even though it may not feel really, like, gritty, practical, uh, teaching this next month, it actually will form and shape you if you're open to it. Now, um, parables are a unique kind of story. Uh, again, they help us to understand God's heart, and they're often very surprising. In fact, I bet every one of us has certain misconceptions about God's heart. And isn't it interesting that we, even though culture seems to be becoming more secular, we still love to talk about God, and you hear celebrities and athletes and, and movie stars talking about their understanding of spirituality. Uh, sometimes I'll hear somebody tell me, well, I don't believe in God. I say, okay, well, tell me, tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And they'll say, well, he's judgmental, he's cruel, he's mean, he's, he's kind of capricious or random, he's impossible to please, whatever, however they put it. And almost every time they say it, I'm able to say, based on what they've said, you know, I don't I don't believe in that God either. In Luke 15, Jesus describes the actual heart of God the Father, and it blows away all of our misconceptions. We see that God's heart isn't hard, it's tender. God is not a father who's impossible or even difficult to please. No, he delights in his children. We see that God doesn't, doesn't even, in Ezekiel 33, it says he doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked. But he longs to see people turn their ways and live. And Jesus knows a picture is worth a thousand words. So instead of offering propositions and proofs, he, just, he gives us a picture. He tells us a parable. 
Now, before we dig into this first parable, let me give you a little bit of context about what a parable is, and very importantly, what a parable isn't. Parables in, in the New Testament, they're stories Jesus tells, but they have a twist. And they have a twist at two levels. First is the level of the story itself. Every great story has a twist. That's, that's why it, it kind of keeps you going, and there's a surprise ending, or there's a turn, and you think, man, I didn't see that coming. It leaves you with suspense. This is one of the reasons that um, the Harry Potter series is brilliant. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Severus Snape. Because the whole series, all seven books, you're wondering, is Snape a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he a book good? And he'll turn and he'll do these unexpected things, and it keeps you engaged. Jesus does things like that in his parables. The villain turns out to be the hero, or the hero turns out to be the villain. But there's another twist to every parable, not so much at the level of the story, but kind of the level above and around the story. We have to understand that parables are not, um, they're not fables. You know Aesop's fables, it's like a tidy, tortoise in the hare, right? And it's a tidy little story, and it's got a nice, neatly wrapped moral at the end of the story. You know, be patient, because eventually the tortoise beats the hare, and the hare's arrogance, or whatever. Parables are not fables. There's a simple, obvious meaning in a fable. Parables often leave us with more questions at the end of the story than we had when we began. Jesus tells the parables, in other words, as much to deconstruct our misunderstandings of God's kingdom as he does to help us to build up a right view. They're wonderful storytelling devices because by not giving one precise answer, it allows our imagination to flourish. So if you're the type of person who's really black and white, if you need the answer to the question before you even ask the question, like you're going to hate the parables. I had one professor in college, uh, not a Christian, he was a secular Jew, probably still is a secular Jew, and he uh, said at one point, he taught a course on parables, and he said, Jesus tells parables not to help us to understand his kingdom more, but in one sense, to help us understand his kingdom less. Can you embrace, this is what we're going to practice for the next month, can you embrace or even accept that a significant part of God's kingdom is supposed to be a mystery? That there are parts of it that we're intentionally maybe not supposed to understand? And can you lean into that mystery? If not, you have to ask yourself, who's my God anyway? And whose kingdom really am I seeking? And that's exactly the problem that Jesus confronts with his parables, especially in Luke 15, with people who think they know, but this is how Luke 15 starts. Now, don't look over it. It just looks like a common little introduction. Okay, Jesus was talking to some people. Get on with it. No, no, no. Slow down. These are not just a perfunctory introduction. The first two verses in Luke 15 are loaded. In fact, they give us more understanding of the parable than the story itself. Listen again. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners, and in some of your Bibles, the word sinner may appear in quotes. That's a helpful tool to let you know what Luke means by this. The tax collectors and, quote, sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering. I love that. They were muttering. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You've got two groups of people around Jesus. On the one hand, you've got tax collectors and sinners. 
They're the ones, if you're the upper crust and the tax collectors and sinners, they're the cultural degenerates. They're the people that you don't let, you don't let your kids play with their kids, in other words. Now, many commentators, just to add a little bit of flesh on those bones, many commentators think that sinners would include, as a subcategory, what we might call the world's oldest profession. These are people who are filled with a substantial amount of shame. And tax collectors were worse. They were traitors. They had buddied up with the enemy Romans, and they extorted their own people for their own profit. If you've been, um, some of you have been watching, I don't know if you've been watching this series, The Chosen, if you've seen The Chosen, uh, season one, Matthew, Matthew's a tax collector and does a brilliant job of illustrating those cultural dynamics that he's struggling with. Now, if you're a good first century Jew, you despise sinners and tax collectors. And isn't it something, by the way, just a little side note, that it's always the sinners and the tax collectors who are drawn to Jesus. He can't go anywhere without attracting the wrong crowd. Not the righteous, but sinners. Not the clean, but the unclean. Not the pure, but the impure. On the other hand, that's so the one. You've got tax collectors and sinners. The other group of people you have around Jesus, this is baffling, is the righteous people, the Pharisees, the clean, the pure. They're the ones, usually they're, they're there, but they're usually offended by Jesus. The Pharisees and the tax collectors muttered. I love that. They didn't even bother confronting Jesus. They just kind of talked amongst themselves, maybe a little bit behind Jesus' back. It was at least loud enough for some people to hear. You know, sometimes like you make an offhand comment to this person, but you make it just loud enough so that they'll hear too. Now, none of you do that, I'm sure. It's the, um, the muttering is like the post-meeting meeting that happens out in the parking lot after the meeting is over. <laughs> this man, you believe him? This guy welcomes sinners. He eats with them. And eating, especially in ancient cultures, was a sign of deep hospitality and welcome. The nerve. Who does he think he is? How could he condone them? He, pre- he pretends he's so righteous. And then he goes off and eats with them. He never invited us to dinner. You hear it? He just muttered. <laughs> Verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. By the way, I love that. Jesus told them. Jesus told who? Them. Wait a minute, who? The tax collectors and sinners or the Pharisees? Yeah, them. We don't really know. (laughs) It's ambiguous. We're not really sure. Jesus told them this parable. Listen again to it. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home and calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. He throws a party. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, it pays to slow down when we read Scripture. And if you've been a churchgoer for very long, especially, you probably gloss right over this story because you've heard it a hundred times. You think, yeah, 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 let's get on with it. You assume, for instance, that Jesus always speaks with kind of a dignified, you know, he sits up real straight, and when he speaks, he has this, this air about his voice. Do you not know? It never occurs to us 
that Jesus was fully human. More human, in fact, than maybe even you or I. And everything it means to be human, Jesus experienced, like frustration. Does it occur to you that Jesus may have spoke sarcastically, or with anger, or with frustration? If Jesus is just this very holy, righteous self, he's not, it's not human, that's a robot. And I'd never noticed this before this week, but let's just drill down into this, really this morning, we're just drilling down into this one detail. Look at what Jesus asked, verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and you lose one of them. Does he not, we would say he or she, does he or she not, don't you leave the 99 in the open country, underline that, in the open country, and go after the lost sheep until you find it? If you had a hundred sheep, you lost one, would you leave the 99 in the open country? That means no fence, no walls, no gates, no protection against predators or against thieves. The open country is a dangerous place in ancient cultures. There is safety in the city walls. There is danger between, like on the road between cities. You starting to get the point? If it's still a little abstract, let's just change the metaphor. Because uh, none of us is a shepherd, I don't think. Uh, suppose you had $100 in your wallet. And you counted, and you noticed there's only 99. Don't you leave your wallet in a public place and then go and find that missing dollar? Hmm? Of course not. The correct answer is, of course not. What you've actually lost, one dollar, is really not that big a deal. Especially when you compare it with what you stand to lose, 99. Who would, like, it's just a 1% loss, big deal. I think two, out of the, two days out of the last week, we lost 1% in our, in our retirement investments. You just, it's just part of life, and you just will gain it back. 1%, whatever. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not? Well, no. He doesn't leave the 99. Jesus isn't being holy, pie in the sky, earnest up front. I think it's, it's sarcastic. It's subversive. He's trying to get our attention. It's his take on the old phrase, you know, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Like if you have one thing, whatever that thing is right now, don't set aside this, the one thing and lose the one to risk possibly getting two. No, cut your losses, keep what you've got. Very just basic risk-reward math. Except Jesus says to his father, one bird in the bush is worth 99 birds in the hand. You see what he's doing there? To our father in heaven, the reward of finding one lost sheep one lost soul is worth the risk, dare I say, of losing the other 99, those who are already religious behind. You see why the Pharisees are so upset at Jesus? This is cutting, absolutely cutting. Because the Pharisees, you or I, let's be honest, you or I, if we noticed that one thing was missing out of 100, okay, like chalk it up to depreciation, write it off as a loss and move on. But God is not a God who wants to just keep, hold on to, preserve what he's got, 
and cut his losses. He's a God of risk. He will risk leaving the 99 in the open country if it means getting the one back. And remember, Luke doesn't tell us. Jesus told them. We don't know if Jesus is talking to the Pharisees or to the so-called sinners and tax collectors. I have a hunch that it's both. So to the sinner, to the tax collector, to the down and out, listen, listen to the rest of the story. Verse 5. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who do not need to repent. What's the, um, what's the emotional response of the shepherd when he finds that one? Does he scold the sheep? Why'd you wander off? Does he complain about how muddy he had to get, like scrambling down that embankment just to get that, that pitiful thing? No. You should have known better. I told you. No. He joyfully, that's Jesus' word, not mine. He joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders, and then he says, rejoice with me again. Joy appears twice right here. And he, he goes home, he, and he puts the sheep on his shoulders. He doesn't say, walk home. You better get moving, mister. No, like, he carries it. And sheep aren't light. I mean, like, baby sheep, maybe, but this might... You see how over the top this is? And he goes home, and he calls his friend, and then he throws a party. If you identify more with the, the so-called sinners and the tax collectors in this story, if you're the type of person who says, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know more, I'd love to know more about God, but I, after what I've done, you, you don't know. The way I hear it here is, oh, I can't walk into a church, the roof would cave in. You ever heard somebody say that? If that's you, know this. Just hear me very plainly. The Father does not want you to return to him out of a sense of guilt. He's not going to scold you. He's not going to shame you. He's a God of grace, not of guilt. There's a, a bishop, an Anglican bishop in, in the 1800s in England. His name is J.C. Ryle. Here's what he wrote about this. I love this. There is an infinite willingness. You could just meditate on that for the day. There is an infinite willingness on God's part to receive sinners. However wicked a man may have been, in the day that he really turns from his wickedness and comes to God by Christ, God is well pleased. Here's my favorite sentence in that quote. He is far more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. God is far more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. A number of you have been reading a book called Gentle and Lowly. This will, this will sound familiar in these themes. Dane Orland, who wrote that book, Gentle and Lowly, he puts it this way. He's kind of rephrasing in a way. He says, it's not our loveliness that wins God's love. 
It is our unloveliness that wins his love. It is not our loveliness that wins God's love. It is our unloveliness that wins God's love. Then he explains himself. He says, consider the hatred a father has against a terrible disease afflicting his child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out the father's love, his heart to his child. Sorry, at some level, the presence of the disease draws out the father's heart to his child all the more. It's true, isn't it? If you've been a parent, when are you most likely to reach out to your kid and just utter tenderness when they're sick? Our sin, our brokenness, our despair, our shame and anxiety and depression, they don't draw the father farther away. They draw him closer. And he doesn't say, okay, now you've got to figure out how to get back to me any more than the shepherd told that lost sheep, you better find your way back to me. No, those things make God want even more desperately to leave the 99 and find What, talking about practical sermons, what do I do with that? What, I don't, what did the sheep do? Nothing. The sheep, as best as I can figure, the sheep let the shepherd find it? Maybe not even that. Will you let the good shepherd find you? Jesus is also speaking, I think, to the religious people, to the Pharisees. Now, I want to be careful here, because the Pharisees always get a bad rap, and it's easy to to probably be harder on them than we should, partly because we're more like them than we'd like to admit. I think the Pharisees, in all likelihood, based on what we know, especially from literature that's not the Bible, but from about the same time, the Pharisees meant the best. They They were trying to do what was right. They really were. They had the best intention. They weren't like willful jerks. <laughs> they just weren't very self-aware, I guess. They had forgotten that God's law was all about cultivating a love for God and a love for our neighbors. That, that God's law is supposed to be outward-facing, not inward-facing. Just a quick little explanation. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 11 about the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and your rue and all kinds of garden herbs. They're tithing from their herb gardens. That's how much they followed the law. You tithe from your herbs, but you neglect justice and the law of God. You should have practiced the latter, the just the latter, the love of God, without neglecting the former. You see what he's saying? So he's saying, it's so easy to think about the nuts and bolts of your faith. Am I checking off every box of things I'm supposed to do? It's so easy to focus on that that you forget the whole point of it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So a Pharisee who's just kind of blinded to that, and again, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They would probably hear this parable and get offended because they knew that Jesus was basically saying they were the 99. Now remember, all, all metaphors have a limit. So I don't, I don't think we can necessarily say that the Father neglects the 99. It's probably not a fair interpretation. 
What I do think he's saying, basically, he makes it clear in verse 7. In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, who changes, who turns to God, than over the 99 persons who don't need to repent. In other words, he's not saying he doesn't care about the righteous. He's just saying, look how much I care for the lost, the people that you've kind of forgotten. Not kind of. The people whom you have utterly forgotten. And by implication, he's challenging us. Do you love them the way I do? Are you willing to to maybe even take risks to leave the 99 in the field, as it were, to find that one lost sheep? Are you willing to risk losing what you have for the sake of my kingdom? Or are you okay with the 1% loss? Jesus says earlier in Luke 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Let me just quote close. I I can't help myself. I want to read one more quote from J.C. Ryle, that Anglican bishop. Here's what he says, and he really captures what's going on here. What Jesus was on earth... He is even now at the right hand of God and will be to all eternity. He is emphatically the sinner's friend. Have we any sense of sin? Do we feel bad and wicked and guilty and deserving of God's anger? Is the remembrance of our past lives bitter to us? Does the recollection of our past conduct make us ashamed? then we are the very people who ought to apply to Christ. Just as we are, pleading nothing of our own and making no useless delay, Christ will receive us graciously, pardon us freely, and give us eternal life. He is one who receives sinners. Let us not remain lost for want of applying to him that we might be saved. Friend, God seeks the lost. God seeks you. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we contribute anything on the front end to your saving work. And yet you do call us, in a sense, to contribute after, after we have been found. So help us to manage that tension. Lord, help us to be willing to be found. What good news it is that for you a bird in the bush is worth 99 in the hand. For a sheep. (laughs) Lord, find us, seek us, and when you find us and when we sense you knocking at the door, give us the courage to let you in and say yes. And then let us participate in and taste the joy of heaven over one sinner who repents. 
Give us the joy of heaven that comes through being found in Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.